0: Good morning and welcome to another beautiful day here on the Five Alive devotional podcast. We are going to continue the book of John chapter 11 today. And the wonderful thing about this passage of scripture is it has such relevance to us in the lives that we live and work. And yet it's one that's commonly overlooked, not one that we normally focus on or take time out to just really study. And as a result of that, I just kind of want to discuss a couple of things as we go through it, and then we're going to just get right down into the nuts and bolts of what this passage of Scripture has to say. First of all, the, there's going to be a plot that the um, religious leaders are going to be coming after Jesus. And I think of all of the times that I've plotted or planned something in the past, and I think of the times that I do it, like, Sometimes I'm planning things with my wife. We go out on a date or we're laying in bed at night and it's like one o'clock in the morning and we start just talking about the future and we start planning and we start making uh, adjustments and we start thinking about, oh, this is what's going to happen or this is what could happen. And so we plan things out. I think of uh, times that were on a date or when we're out in public and we are just having a conversation and the conversation just automatically turns into a discussion of the future or how are we going to plan for X or how are we gonna plan for Y? And as we're discussing things, we we make plans, we set precedences, we set goals and we and we start looking at things in these regards. And there's nothing really different here When we're looking at the religious leaders, they have goals, they have plans, they have desires, and they are trying to make sure that those are fulfilled. And we can't really overstate the fact that these are men just like you and I are men, and they are seeking to fulfill what they believe is God's will in their life. Remember, they are religious leaders, so we can't say automatically, oh, they are evil, and they're bent on doing nothing but evil, and oh, these are the enemies of Jesus because of the plan that they're going to come up with. However, what we must understand, we must realize is is these are men of God who are seeking to, in some capacity, in some form, fulfill God's plan within their lives and within their community. They believe what they're doing is right. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up the book of John. We're going to read verses 45 through 57 in the 11th chapter. That's John eleven forty-five through 57.
1: Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many of them went up to the country of Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so
0: that they might arrest him. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I want to kind of look through the verses. So verse 45 we have the healing of lazarus a man who has been dead for four days is risen from the dead as jesus calls out lazarus come out lazarus comes out of the tomb and there is a crowd of people there and the crowd is kind of divided now this isn't like a 50 50 kind of division this is like some of them believed on jesus and some of them did not and so as a result we have people who are like wow can you believe this miracle that Jesus did and the the focus is for them solely on this miraculous Uh, miracle that has transpired where a dead man has come to life. He's not like a zombie, like in our zombie apocalypse movies that we have today, but he is completely whole. He's completely healed. There's nothing wrong with any of his internal organs. There's nothing wrong with his body. There's no rot. There's no stink. There's none of that. And Lazarus has come out. And so this is a huge focus. And this could be the only focus that we take away from the 12 verses of scripture that we read today. And we could think that we're fulfilled because it's so easy to focus on this point that we can exaggerate that none of the rest of it really matters. However, some people run off and they want the authority to understand what has happened. And they witness these people. Oh my goodness. Can you believe John and deep and and Sonny and, and all of these people, they, they came to faith in Jesus. And so they run off and they tell the religious leaders, this is who came to Jesus. And they're, they're kind of tattletales. They're like, oh my goodness, you can't believe this. I mean, this was who did it, and this is who did it, and this is who did it. And as they go to the religious leaders, they are trying to focus the attention off of the miracle that has transpired. They're trying to take the focus off of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, healing somebody. And they're placing it instead onto the fact that they are more uh, tattletales in this scenario than anything else. So I just have a quick question. Have you ever tattletaled? Tattletold? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I know I definitely have. Have you ever exaggerated your tattletailing moment just so that that way you can get more attention so that that way you can get justice for yourself in this situation? Exaggerated? No, I always
1: I mean, whenever I was younger, people would say I tattletailed, but I I always thought of it as telling. So like if someone did something wrong and I told the teacher or something like that they'd say, oh, tattletale and stuff like that. But I felt more as if it was telling the truth. And I told them the facts, and that was it. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't exaggerate or anything like that. I said, this is what happened, and that's that. I mean, I didn't try and cover it up, because we're not supposed to lie. We're always supposed to tell the truth. And if the teacher or your parents ask you what happened, then... There's no need to exaggerate it. You just tell them what happened, Mm -hmm. even though people may label you as a tattletale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I completely get where you're coming from. Uh, With tattletaling comes a stigma, like you're a snitch. Oh, man, I can't believe you did that. You know, snitches get stitches and all of these kinds of phraseologies that have come out within modern time. Is tattletaling always the... The worst thing that you can do. Because again, I'm not wanting to over exaggerate and make those that didn't believe on Jesus that day become evil people. I'm just stating that's what happened. And sometimes we find ourselves on that end of the role of life where we are the ones that are telling an authority of a situation that has happened. And does that make us all of a sudden a bad person? No, I don't think so. I mean, some of some of the greatest scenarios have been fixed with a whistleblower or somebody who has exposed a a bad thing that is going on within government, within our everyday lives, within corporate corporate world, within any of these things, whistleblowers, tattletales uh, or snitches are the ones that help solve absolute corruption. And so we can look at these men and women that are running off to the religious authority as people who aren't really on one side or the other of belief in Jesus. But at the same time, we've got to recognize the fact that they didn't believe on Jesus in this moment. That wasn't the scenario that played out in their hearts and in their lives and in their minds. What happened was, is they saw this miracle happen and they ran off and they told the religious leaders this amazing miracle wasn't transformative to them. So a council is gathered. Then a discussion starts. Religious leaders uh, get together and, and they recognize the fact that the Romans who were the occupying force of Israel at this time had given them special authority and power and they did not want to lose this. And so as a result, they come up with a phrase that they say, if we don't stop Jesus, Everyone will believe. This is the temper tantrum of adults. This is similar to that temper tantrum that as adults or as what we believe ourselves to be mature people, we we make these kinds of comments. Well, everybody's going to believe on Jesus if we don't stop this right now. The other ones that we also use are. Well, you always do this. You've never done that. Or, well, I've never done it that way before. Or we've never done it that way before. I gave you a gift and that gift was supposed to be used for blank. And what you do with our gift, we're going to tell you what you have to do with it. Like these are manipulative controlling techniques. The way kids talk about it is this. They just say simply, I'm going to tell mom or wait till dad gets home. I'm going to really get you in trouble now. These are our temper tantrums that we throw, and notice the vocabulary doesn't really change a whole lot as we mature or as we get older. We just think it makes us sound more sophisticated. Well, everybody will believe on Jesus if we don't stop this right now. However, the purpose is the same, whether we're children, I'm going to tell mom, or we're adults. You've never done it that way before. It is to maintain control and power to ourselves. We make our opposition, look evil or guilty. And so therefore we raise above them as if we are the judge and the authority figure in that moment. And so I'm just constantly reflecting on this fact that do I see myself as more important than I actually am? Am I so selfish that I think that I can rise above the authority figures that God has put in place within government, within my city council, within my job, within within the hierarchy of, of faith itself? Do I think I'm more important than God? Because if I do, this is idolatry of self. If everyone were really to believe that Jesus was Lord, then nobody would have ran off to the religious leaders because they would have all believed that day and everything would have continued to go on. But snitches ran off to the Pharisees and they made a complaint. And they said, Jesus healed Lazarus. They raised him from the dead. He raised him from the dead. And you guys have got to do something about this because they didn't have a belief. Secondly, we have the sacrifice. Caiaphas makes mention of this in verse 50 and he says, one man could die for the many. Modern day scholars seem to be concerned with Caiaphas's politics in maintaining power and his unconcern for right and wrong or for justice versus injustice. And as I was reading some commentators preparing for today, I noticed that they're all commenting on the fact that Oh, he was just a political pundit. He was a political power. He was political this. He was political that. However, they seem to fail to have read on verses 51, 52, and 53 that talk about the fact that Caiaphas is stating that one will die for the many is not just an offhanded remark, but this is prophecy being fulfilled. fulfilled. And I bring this up because we can be just as guilty. As scholars, as experts, or as laymen of manipulating situations and areas of our expertise to fit the scenario that we want it to fit in of that day. And that's what I've seen with some of our own Bible commentators that call themselves Christians is that they try and manipulate the story that is right there for all of us to read so that that way they can gain popularity, that that way they can get more money out of a book sale or so that that way they can push some kind of agenda so that that way it makes them feel better or look better. Somehow it makes their judgment more right than anybody else's judgment, which brings me to the point of asking the question, What do we gain by doing this kind of thing? What are some of the techniques that we use to get our way? Are we just like these men, these scholars, who are trying to manipulate the historicity of what happened in Jesus's day in order to make ourselves look better in the 21st century? Do we read the whole passage of Scripture? Or do we cut it short so that that way, oh, that answered what I wanted it to answer, and that's all there is to it, and so now I don't have to study anymore, and I have my answer. What do we gain by doing this?
1: Self-gratification. Okay. I mean, like you said, you look for a certain scripture to fulfill your needs, and it's all for you, as opposed to helping out (laughs) the many. Yeah. Like, in this... Yeah, it brings about you make yourself feel better because you got what you wanted. Hmm. And you're forcing what you want upon other people. Hmm. And this moment, Caiaphas is saying, we'll sacrifice one life for the many lives. But in that, that's just his opinion that he wants to force upon the whole nation of Jerusalem and Israel. Not everybody would agree with that. I'm sure not everybody in this council agrees with it at all. But the large majority probably did agree with it since it did come to pass. Yeah, It was bringing about more of a self-gratification for him. And I have the power at this point in time as opposed to actually
0: doing it for the people. Mm-hmm. And as a modern-day Bible scholar myself, somebody who has studied the Word of God for over 20 years... I I am constantly asking am I am I manipulating this to fit my paradigm am I manipulating the scripture in order to fit my story so that that way it makes me look better and there's these moments in our lives where we really uh we really got to come to grips with the fact that yeah I am or no I'm not Uh, so that that way we're not just trying to get a following of people and uh, make money off of them or somehow get uh, them to do our will as opposed to do God's will. And that's what we have Caiaphas here. Xavier mentioned not everybody in the council probably uh, believed what Caiaphas is saying. And I would have to say I agree with you in that, Xavier, because we have uh, the story of Jesus's death. We know that that's coming up. And we know that when he is going to be buried, he's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb of somebody that is a part of this religious council. We also know that Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus in John chapter 3, is also a part of this council, yet he believes on Jesus. And we know that because at the burial, Nicodemus is there burying Jesus, and he is a. a, a seen as one of Jesus's followers. So definitely there were people that didn't necessarily believe even in this situation. So we have a situation where Jesus is healing a a dead man. And you have some people who believed and some people who don't believe you have a situation where Caiaphas is making a pronouncement, one's going to die for the many. And you have somebody, some people who believe that that's a good idea. And some people who don't. And so, yes, Caiaphas, in his political fervor, in his power, his control, he nonchalantly makes a statement, an offhanded remark that just so happens to be prophecy. And I I want us to notice that this can happen to us, too, because we are going to be judged in accordance with everything that we say and everything that we do. And that was mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. Mallory, will you read that for us?
2: But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account therefore in the day of judgment, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. (laughs)
0: Jesus, one man, would die for all people. This is a true statement. He is absolutely correct. Not only is Jesus just going to die for the nation of Israel, but he is going to die for all of those who would believe in him. And nonchalantly, laxadaisically, Caiaphas is making this pronouncement. And yet his words hold truth. They hold exact prophecy in this matter. To the fact that he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And yes, Caiaphas is going to lose his power one day. Yes, the religious leaders of that day are going to lose their power eventually. And the same is true of us even today. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus never loses his power. Jesus never loses his authority. Jesus has never lost control of what's going on in this universe or on this earth. This makes me pause and reflect on my own life. As a man of God, have I become complacent? Am I still an infant Christian, or am I growing and maturing in Christ? Am I seeking my own reward, or am I seeking God's will? Do I properly understand that God is a God of judgment? Do I properly understand that God is a God of righteousness? These are questions that I ask myself. These are questions that I reflect on. These are questions that I meditate on while I'm reading scripture, while I'm praying, while I'm going about my day-to-day business. Because if I'm out doing a, a business transaction, if I'm out consulting a company and the opportunity rises for me to cheat or to somehow scam the person that I am working with, in that moment do i take advantage of the person or do i understanding that even the most flippant word that comes off of my mouth is going to be judged one day do i react accordingly to that these are the kinds of reflections that we've got to have in in my personal private time am i still submitting myself to god in my privacy Because if I'm a different person in my privacy than I am in my public life, then I am not submitting everything to Christ. What are the reflections do you guys have off of what Caiaphas is doing here in this passage of scripture?
3: You were asking the am I questions personally to yourself. I have to self-reflect with Caiaphas in the moment of, there are those that God will use to fulfill God's prophecy. And that necessarily does not have to be fulfilled through a born-again believer in Christ Jesus. So you have Caiaphas stating one is gonna die for the many and unbeknownst to him, he he did not know that he was speaking of Jesus Christ, that that would be the one. I have to ask myself, am I so arrogant that only God can use me Mm to speak his prophecies? Or am I going to listen to those who Christ is working on their hearts? Because Jesus is ultimately wanting us to draw closer to him. He's drawing us in. He he wants us to know and experience who he is, even if you don't know the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. So am I gonna be so arrogant not to be friends with an unbeliever or not to allow an unbeliever to invest words of wisdom to me Mm. so i have to self-reflect in those moments
0: yeah that's a great point i think it's important for us to see the fact that control is something that mankind is always trying to grasp for we are always trying to make ourselves look like an authority figure and gather people into our Uh, group that will agree with us. And in gathering people into our group, anybody that doesn't believe exactly like we do, we automatically look at them as outcasts. This is across the board. This isn't within Christianity only. This isn't within Hinduism only. This isn't within Islam only. This is within everything that people will, even atheists, if you don't believe like I do, then you're against me. And I've noticed this is going on a lot in this 21st century, especially this year, 2020. We have people that if they do something uh, like, let's say, go on vacation to a private island somewhere, everybody comes out. And has an opinion of what this means this is a maybe a public person but their private life all of a sudden gets made public and everybody has an opinion on the matter and if you stand on one side or the other that determines who your friends can be and that determines who your friends aren't and as a result we have a lot of people that are just absolutely hating on everyone. You can't do anything right today because if you say the one wrong word on your social media account, then all of a sudden everybody's going to come out and attack you because you're an evil, vile person. I don't have an answer for why that is occurring, but I do believe that it's something that has always been within mankind's heart. We have always perceived and we have always done this we maintain a desire to have control to have other people like us and within the people that like us they can't disagree with what we state with what we believe automatically if they do then they're our worst enemy have you guys noticed that Mm
1: -hmm. yeah with this whole one for the many mix, i mean it is a social experiment and everything nowadays as well is. i mean i remember when I was younger watching TED, Ed, Ted educational video mm-hmm. on a social experiment on they tested people, whether or not. So you're standing on a bridge and a train is coming by super fast and there are a hundred people on the train. Sure. You and another person are on the bridge. Would you but the trains, brakes are broken. Would you throw that person in front of the train to stop the train to save those a hundred people or would you let those a hundred people die or would you sacrifice yourself? to save those 100 people and it became and it's it was different between each person and whether the gender of the person if it was a male or a female it all depended on how the people felt at that moment in time towards this but in the end it's just like is it right to kill one person to save multiple people or is it right to let all of these people die Hmm. i mean and there is no right or wrong really answer to it it just how you feel in this moment and if you want to retain or take control control and have the power in this moment to kill a person to save many or are you willing like Jesus at this point in time to lay down your own life
0: to save the many? Mm -hmm. So along with what Xavier's talking about, Jesus is one man. He died for not only the nation of Israel. Let's keep that in mind. But he also died for those that are scattered abroad. This is verses 52 and 53 of John chapter 11, where he, Caiaphas is prophesying these things. And so Jesus prophesied death is for the salvation of all mankind, according to those who will believe in Jesus. And this is a full circle conversation back to, on the day Lazarus is raised from the dead, some people believed, not all, some people did not believe, As a Christian, am I okay with the fact that some people aren't going to believe in Jesus Christ? Let me ask it a little bit of a different way. Does my theology allow for some people not to believe on Jesus? And can those people still be my friends? Can those still people still be my business partners or acquaintances? Can I still operate a day-to-day life? Can I go to school with other students who do not believe the same way that I do? Can I get into a car and go on a road trip with people who don't believe exactly like I do? Does my theology, does my thought process allow for the fact that some people are not going to believe? Am I okay with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Because that even has to do with the... There's a statistic. There's, what, 8 billion people on the earth? More. 8 billion or more. But <clears throat> I've heard in churches where if you make friends with three people today and you tell them about Jesus and they accept Jesus and everybody does it and they do that with three friends and they do that with three friends, then the whole world's going to be saved. But in that statistic, there's no room for a free will.
0: Right. There's no room for free will.
1: And the thing you have to realize and accept as a Christian is that uh, everybody has their own free will. They have the choice whether or not they're going to believe. And they can hear it. And that's whenever Christ says he is going to come back. When all have heard the gospel, that doesn't mean all are going to believe. It just means everybody's going to have heard what the gospel message is.
0: Yeah, And that passage of Scripture can get taken out of context as well, because at this point... I. Uh, we have nothing really preventing Jesus from coming back at any day. He could return like a thief in the night, as the Bible says, like a thief in the night, he will return for his children and we will be caught up with him in the air and his will continue to be fulfilled. And there will be people that do not make it into his kingdom. We see this played out in a couple of parables by Jesus. One found in Matthew chapter 10, verses five through 15. Blair, would you read that for us?
3: These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive Uh without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the Day of Judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town.
0: Do these verses, specifically 14 and 15, fit into my knowledge and understanding of who God is and this world? I've got to ask myself this. Am I okay with the fact that as I am proclaiming the gospel, as I am sharing the good news of who Jesus is, there are going to be people that are not going to listen to what I say. They're going to, in fact, reject me and maybe even treat me horribly. And as they treat me horribly, I, I take my peace back upon me, shake the dust off my feet and know that they're just not going to follow after God. Am I okay with that? Am I okay with the fact that the world has people in it that just aren't going to be exactly like I am? We're not cookie cutters. Is that okay? Do I place myself above God believing that I can force every acquaintance, family member, and friend to be the same scoundrel Christian that I am? And yeah, I worded that with scoundrel, because that's what we sometimes are acting like when we think that everybody has to do or believe exactly like I do. We don't leave a place for the fact that there is going to be some people that will not believe. Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives us another parable. Mark chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Now I'm going to stop there. That's the first part of this parable, but Jesus explains it in just a few verses later, starting in verse 13 through 15. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, whether they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Do I think that I can prevent birds from gathering seed off the ground? I mean, have you ever tried? Have you ever tried that? Like, have you ever been? I I remember being at the beach when I was a young kid and people were throwing bread and then somebody came along and tried to stop the seagulls from getting the bread. And so they were trying to gather up the pieces of bread and the seagulls were still diving down and getting bread and they were just trying to gather it up. They didn't want them to have that bread. And it was the funniest thing because there was just the flock of birds got bigger and bigger and bigger and they kept on swooping down and taking that bread. And it makes me think in this passage of scripture, do I really think that I can prevent Satan from stealing the seed of the gospel from certain people's lives? And is that the job of the sower? Is it the job of the sower to not just sow the seed, but also make sure that seed doesn't get gathered up by the birds? Make sure that the seed doesn't get choked out by weeds? To make sure that the seed doesn't fall on hardened ground? No, the sower freely sows, and sometimes the soil is good. So why do I prevent myself from sowing? Because of the fear of failure. Oh man, the fear of failure. But we talk all the time. I mean, I've even seen the shirts on Instagram by a couple of different companies. They have these shirts and they say, faith over
1: fear. But we don't always proclaim the gospel because we're afraid of how society is going to treat us, how people are going to treat us, or whether or not people are going to accept the gospel. And so our faith is actually under our fear in those moments. And a large majority of the time it is because we're so afraid to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Yeah. And we may sing songs and wear shirts. I'm unashamed of the gospel. And yeah, my faith is over my fear. But then you go home and you go back to how you were.
3: Right, because it's more it's more than a Sunday and or a Wednesday opportunity of discovering who Christ Jesus is. You can't just throw in a sermon and be like, all right, well, I know the Bible inside and out. You have, to, you have to discover the word of God for your own self, and that's an individual choice. And if you're not putting the time in to learn and to understand and to read and to listen and to pray and to meditate on the holy scriptures of God's word, then fear does settle in and inadequacy does come. The task does become great. And then it's like, well, I'll just leave it up to the experts. I'll just leave it up to those that are already preaching evangelists and they seem to be doing a good enough job. So if I can just keep my lifestyle just a little bit less than theirs, then then I'll make it. Then I'll be okay. And you just become complacent. Mm -hmm. There's a complacency Mm -hmm. that comes. And instead of really, truly understanding and getting to know our Savior as our personal Lord, we will be held accountable for that. And I, I'm always challenged by those that do know a lot about Christianity. They may believe in a different kind of a faith, but yet they still have strong beliefs of who they know Christ to be.
2: Hmm.
0: Another question I ask myself is, am I able to allow God to be God and I be his servant sower? So often what I want to do is I want to put myself in the place of God. And I can get caught up into it really easy. You know, I can, I can watch a TV show and I can hear the way people talk about uh, their life, their complacent acts that they've fallen into or uh, just the lifestyle of which they lead, that they have so much power and authority. And other they get a large following behind them to the point where they feel like anything they say or anything they do is greater than anything God says or does to the point where they feel they can do no wrong. So even in the midst of their wrongdoing, they feel, well, it'll be justified because I'm doing it for the right, I'm doing this other thing for the right reason. So that thing, God will just glance over that because he is a God of love. And we forget that God is also a God of judgment. He is a God who judges us. He is a God that loves us so much that he has to judge the evil that enters into our heart, especially this one evil that constantly overtakes us. And that's the same sin that Satan fell out of heaven with, thinking that I can be greater than God. Isn't that what within Christianity we've come to recognize Satan as? He is the one that rebelled against God, thinking that he was greater than he was. And so therefore he gathered a group of angels, and together they came against God Almighty to fight against him and say, pronounce Satan, as greater than God. And so then God kicked him out of heaven and cast him to the earth where he roams as the prince of this earth. And his angels were turned therefore into demons. And as a result, they then also are going about trying to convince people within this world to follow after Satan just as they did. And that's why there are times when Jesus would perform these miracles and there would not be people that would always believe. And sometimes it's the same reason today is because we have this ego, this desire to be greater than God that affects us and affects our our teaching. So I ask myself as a Christian, how do I make my life fit into God's will, God's plan and continue to keep him as Lord and savior? Here's a few statements. I am a Christian. As a Christian, I am to live according to a life that is obedient to Christ. When I mess up, I repent. I ask for forgiveness and I pay restitution. As a Christian, I also have a responsibility to preach the good news, to share Jesus' teachings, and to show that he is the way. Am I okay with this? Or do I find myself living partially off of others' misfortunes, manipulating people to better myself? Do I seek to look good while I degrade others? Is that my sole purpose in life? Number four, Jesus was no longer able to walk openly. To fulfill God's will, God's son had to temporarily isolate. He would not be allowed in the public eye. In accordance with this passage of scripture that we just read, made me think today about history, story from the Old Testament. There was a prophet, his name was Elijah. Elijah was called up onto a mountain where he faced off with 400 uh, adversaries, worshipers of Baal. And as they were on this mountain, they were supposed to call to Baal and have him in a consuming fire take their sacrifice. And it didn't happen. They were praying and chanting and cutting themselves and offering sacrifices to Baal for 12 hours. And Elijah just stood there. And finally, Elijah said, "Okay, I'm going to prepare my sacrifice and I'm going to pray to God the true God, God of Israel, and he is going to consume the fire. And Elijah believed this was gonna happen so much that he dug a trench around his sacrifice. He ordered that there go that people would go and grab water and that they would douse the sacrifice that he had made in an offering to God with water. And it was so wet that this ditch that was around the sacrifice that Elijah made was filled with water itself. And then Elijah said a simple prayer. He said, God, I believe in you, and I want you to show yourself, reveal yourself today. And fire from heaven came and consumed that sacrifice that Elijah had prepared, and all of the water, it says the fire even licked up the water out of the ditch that was around the sacrifice. And so Elijah was vindicated that God is the king of kings, the God of Israel is the Lord of lords, that God is the one whom he proclaimed, and that Baal was just a false idol. Yet Elijah then ran because he heard that he could get killed because everybody was upset with him, and he went and isolated himself. And God then revealed to himself, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 others who are pure just like you. Now, this isn't the exact story of what Jesus is going to experience here, but what we see through Jesus's actions and through the reaction of healing a dead man, pronouncing him completely clean as a high priest, tattletales running off to the religious leaders and authorities of that day. We see that Jesus is now facing a moment of isolation and aloneness. Yes, his disciples are with him, But this helps us to understand that when I experience loneliness because I have stood up for Christ, Jesus also understood. I can experience others making fun of me. Maybe they're even fellow Christians. They can attack me for my values and for my ethics and my stand of what I believe in Scripture. And perhaps. In that loneliness, I'm actually closer to Jesus than I was whenever I was this awesome person standing in power and authority to see this great miracle transpire. There's a few passages of scripture that I want to read that go along with this. The first one being 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12.
3: Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation
0: and then first peter chapter 4 verse 16.
1: yet if anyone suffers as a christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify god in that name
0: and then first timothy four twelve.
2: let no man despise thou youth but be thou in example of the believers in the word in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity.
0: Jesus identifies with us. He knows us. He knows our innermost being. He, He created us. He knows how we're going to react when we're plotting and planning. He knows if we're the tattletale. He knows if we're the one that believes on him or doesn't believe on him. The amazing thing about Jesus is is that he doesn't then destroy our credibility. He doesn't then come along and attack us personally and say discriminating things about us. Instead, what he does is he looks to build us up. And we identify with him in these moments that he then shows us that He truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He truly is Emmanuel. He is God with us, understanding the situations and scenarios we find ourselves in. Is there anything else that I'm missing today? Is there anything else in this passage of Scripture that is valuable for us to continue to meditate on and continue to apply to our lives?
3: God is the final yes. Despite what man may say, despite what man does, despite what we tell god of how he's going to work for us (laughs) god has the final say because he he's the ultimate in our human stupidity
1: because even we can go oh why would god let his own son die how unjust of a god he must be and how unjust of a god that he let this happen to me but in reality our uh own form of justice that we have in our heads isn't the correct justice i mean god is justice he is the literal meaning of justice he's the one what who decides what is just and what is unjust so you can't blame god for being unjust whenever he is the like mommy said he has the final say Hmm. he is the one who says this is what unjustice is and this is what justice is he's the one who created that he's the one who made those words have meaning and in that point, we can try and blame God for our own form of justice, even if, if it's twisted or you think righteous form of justice in your own head that, oh, God wouldn't allow this to happen to me. But in reality, that's all part of God's plan because he is, like she's, mommy said, he is the final say. He's the one who, the author of the universe, he's the one who makes all Things happen all the scientific properties and stuff we are able to discover and see as true he already made so that we we would have an understanding of things and how the world operates i mean thinking about like the periodic table was not invented by a man as my school curriculum says he only only he actually just discovered the fact that they have a pattern to them and that you can discover elements according to this pattern. But God's the one who ultimately created that pattern. He just waited for man to see the pattern and then write it down from there and have it passed on. That way we have an actual understanding of how things work because God made everything and it's really complicated. And so he gave us humans with enough knowledge and understanding that way we might be able to discover all the goodness that he has made for us and everything like that he mm-hmm. made things so that we we might understand them and it sometimes is really complicated like physics and other stuff like that like it comes to the point where a large majority of it is theoretical mm-hmm. but it's still god revealing stuff to man To the point where we can actually try and understand the universe that he has made for us and for himself as well.
0: And the reality is, is it brings us right back with what you're saying, Xavier, to Genesis and even Blair, you're saying with the authority. He is the author. He is the authority. He is the one set this world into motion, allows us to discover it. And yet, even within the proclamation of what Adam or mankind's job is to do, it is to name. We are to name. In other words, we are to discover. Mm -hmm. And God allows us to be a part of him with discovery. And that's a beautiful thing. And yet, we constantly have these things that hold us back from further discovery. Sometimes it's plots and plans by another figurehead from another organization or another company. Sometimes it is our own shortcomings. Sometimes it is people driving us to a place where we feel like we have to isolate ourselves and be all alone. Sometimes it is those questions of why why again like i'm thinking of the germans and the belgians today that are getting ready to go on another lockdown because of the covid 19 pandemic and i'm guarantee you there's people over there going why why again and then god
3: is god is still at work
0: and god is still at work you're right
3: he doesn't stop
0: no he's the ultimate authority in all these cases and he doesn't want us to stop discovering him. And in this lockdown moment for those who are in Germany or in Belgium or anywhere else that may eventually get locked down again, let's look at that as a joyous moment that we get to discover who he is more intimately than ever before. Let's stop looking at the, and I don't mean to say just the negative side of things because that's something that we do automatically sometimes and we don't always have just this joy bubbling up within us but instead let's see god for who he is and what he's doing in this 21st century and the beauty of what is being revealed thanks for bringing that up blair thanks for bringing that up xavier i believe on and in the lord jesus christ forsaking all other gods and even the idolatry of myself I am determined to grow in faith in Christ and righteousness. No cost is too great in this pursuit. I there submit myself into the hands of the Holy Spirit, surrendering all that I am that others may also know the good news and become righteous in Christ. Mallory, will you close us in prayer?
2: Thank you, Jesus, for today and every single day. And um, that we're going to have a great day today. And that everybody will be happy. And if they meet somebody new, tell them that you are very happy for them in their life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.